0: Now says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Amen. Beloved of God the Father, through Christ our Savior and King, there can be great value in grasping the goal of the work that we're called to do. I once had a a boss who often assigned work without explaining the purpose of the task. He might tell you, I want you to go cut a bunch of pieces of steel of these dimensions, of this particular length and width. But he wouldn't tell you how those metal plates were going to be used. Now, of course, he's the boss. You know, he he can run his business however he wants. He entirely has that right. But if he doesn't tell me what that metal is going to be used for, what its ultimate purpose is, well, I might choose the wrong grade of steel, right? Or I might try to be frugal and use up some of this old rusty metal that's been sitting out back, not knowing that he's planning to weld it all together and that that rust is going to impede the process quite a bit, right? If I don't know the goal, I can't really do the best job possible. Plus, if I don't know the goal, I'm not going to be excited about the job, I'm just going through the motions. I don't see how I'm part of the bigger plan. And if a person is going to do a job well, well, it helps to be excited. It helps to be eager about the task. The best work is done. The best result is received from those who understand the goal. And that's what Peter is doing in this text. He's giving us a glimpse of ...of the goal. He's going to tell us, he tells us right at the start... uh, ...some instruction for how we're to live. And throughout the rest of this letter, he's going to give us some very concrete instruction... ...about how we're to live, how we're to act, what we're not to do and what we are to do. But right here, he explains to us the goal. And the goal is that we would be suited, equipped, prepared... To be God's priestly people. Now this isn't new. Israel of old, as they stood before Mount Sinai, as they prepared to experience the presence of the Lord in a way they never had before, they were told in Exodus 19 that you will be my priestly people, set apart from all the people of the world, uniquely mine for my glory, for my worship. And now Peter is telling us, telling the church, the same thing. And he's calling us to embrace that priestly purpose. However, Peter doesn't start by completely describing that priestly purpose. In fact, he barely mentions the priesthood until the middle of our text. And he's going to explain a lot more about it in the next text that we come to. Nonetheless, as we study this text, it becomes clear that the whole thing revolves around this goal that God calls his people to embrace their priestly purpose. And he begins that call by urging God's people to prefer the word over the world. And that's the first thing we see here, that we're called to prefer the word over the world, which we see in the first three verses. He starts with a, a very important word, so, or as it's rendered in other translations, therefore. Kids, whenever you see that word in the Bible, so or therefore, stop a minute. Look at what just came before. This is usually a call to respond to what you just read, right? Because of this, therefore that. Because of what God said or did here, therefore here's how you must respond or what you must think or what you must do. In this case, he wants us to remember How he has revealed to us this glorious gospel by which we have new life in Christ. He wants us to remember how God sent his son, caused him to be the perfect sacrifice, raised him up from the dead, glorified him so that we could serve him. And then that command with which chapter 1 ended, that command that in all of it we are to love God. Considering all of that, he says... He wants us to do away with one thing and embrace something else. The first is the hard command. Put away. Put off. Get rid of. We don't like those commands because they imply that the way that we are is bad. That the way that we are is defective. And that sort of offends us. But that's okay. It's okay that we're a bit offended it's the truth. The way that we were born, the way that we naturally were as sons and daughters of Adam was not good. And so in preparing us to take up our priestly purpose, he wants us first of all to put off that ugliness which once characterized us, that ugliness that made us unacceptable rebels in God's sight. And the first one is the most important one. Put away all malice. Malice is the desire to do evil that resides in the heart. Malice is the difference between manslaughter, accidentally killing someone, and murder, which is intentionally, evilly, killing someone. In other words, he wants us to to dig down deep in the heart and put off the hatred toward man, the hatred toward God that drives our sin. Put off all malice. Malice. And all deceit. Deceit is maliciously telling a lie. There are times in scripture where God expresses approval for a righteous lie. When, like when the, the midwives in Egypt disobeyed Pharaoh and, uh, and sought to preserve the lives of infants. Or, or when Rahab deceived the leaders of Jericho so that the, spy, the Israelite spies could escape. But that's rare. Most deceit is malicious. It's not godly. And God wants us to put it off. He is the God of truth. Satan is the father of lies. So we shouldn't be following after Satan. We should be following after the God of truth. So put off all deceit and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is just lying about yourself. It's saying that you're better than you are. It's, it's acting as though you're just fine. But we're not, are we? Or we wouldn't have to put off malice and deceit and all this other stuff. We're not fine. We need Christ. He's the only way we can be fine in God's sight. And we need to be open about that. We need to not put on airs. We need to not pretend that we're somehow better than other people. We're not. And we shouldn't pretend otherwise. Put off all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Again, slander is the province of the evil one. Satan means accuser. Those who slander, they seek to call to mind the sins and the disobedience and the ugliness of others to make them look bad, to make them feel bad, and correspondingly to make me look better. And God says, put that away. Get rid of that. We should long for the good of our neighbor, not for his ill. We should love our neighbor, not hate him. So put off all slander and also envy. Envy is desiring what God has given to others, but withheld from me. In as such, envy is, is really an accusation that God has withheld from me what I really needed. It's claiming that God doesn't know best, that God hasn't done what is best. This too we need to put off. All these things are elements of our rebellion. All of these things are what make us unholy in the sight of God. What make us unacceptable before him. He wants us to put all of this away and instead prefer something better. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is a challenge. The Lord wants us to evaluate. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Do you understand that His ways are good and perfect and upright and holy? Do you understand that He will answer your prayers, that He will meet your needs? Do you grasp that at times when He answers your prayers in ways that you didn't expect or perhaps didn't even want, that He knows better than you? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? If so then long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up, up into salvation. You see the metaphor there, right? Infants long for milk because that's the nutritious meal that God has given that allows them to grow and be strengthened and mature. Without that milk, they will become malnourished, they will become unhealthy, eventually they will die. And so recognizing, it's built into them to recognize that they need that milk, they need that nourishment. And if you don't give it to them, they will cry and yammer and scream until you do. They will make sure that you know their need and that you're going to meet it. And that's what he wants us to do, but, but not for regular milk that you drink out of a glass. He wants us to consume the pure, spiritual milk. The word for spiritual there is logikos. It's the word from which we get the word logical. So it's often translated rational. It also can mean spiritual. So as opposed to material. right? And in some, in fact in the New King James Version, it's translated of the word. Because logikos derives from the logos, which is the word. And all of that is really bound up together in what is expressed here. The milk which we need is not a physical milk, but a spiritual milk. It's the the milk, it is the nourishment, it is the strengthening that we receive through the Word of God. The Word that gave us life, the Word that was preached to us, that brought us to Christ, that is the milk that we continue to need. But not an adulterated milk, not a polluted milk. We don't need the Word and the Word of men. We don't need the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the academy. We need the pure and unadulterated wisdom of God. You see, if we're to put off all of these things that characterized us in our rebellion, if we're to put off all of these things that God hates, then we need to put on that which will strengthen us in Christ, that which will draw us closer to the Lord, that which will reveal to us the character that God delights in. And so we must long for, we must crave, we must deeply treasure The Word of God. We don't naturally. Right? Kids, have you ever gotten to that point in the sermon or in the the worship service and you're like, oh, now we have to listen to the minister? Right? We've all felt that. Well, at least I'll get candy. But God wants us to begin longing for that pure spiritual milk. And we will if we understand it as that if we understand it as the milk of God's word that allows me to grow, the nourishment that strengthens my soul and draws me closer to Christ, that causes me to hate that which came natural, to hate that which is hateful to God, and to love that which speaks of, that that which points to Christ. Because if we drink that milk, if we consume that in worship, but also day by day, Immersing ourselves in God's word when we start the day. Joining with our family later in the day to study that word again. Meditating on it in our minds while we drive down the road. Singing the songs of God's word as we're at work. If we're taking time to immerse ourselves in the pure spiritual milk of God's word, we will grow closer to the Lord. We will be strengthened, not Physically, but spiritually, we will be drawn more into the image of Christ. Delighting not in malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, but delighting in holiness and truth and love and grace. That's essential for the Christian life. But as I said, a complete reversal from what comes natural to us. Nevertheless, we need it because we must grow since we are receiving a place in the priesthood. That's the second thing we see in verses 4 and 5. We are receiving a place in the priesthood. That's why we must prefer the word over the world. Now, notice this second section starting in verse 4. It's not talking to just anyone. It's speaking to those who come to him as you come to him. Now, What underlies that translation is a present participle. I try not to get too much into the the grammar here, but in the Greek, a present participle generally defines the one to whom it refers by what is their characteristic action. Why that's important is because coming to Christ is not a one-time thing. This shows us that coming to Christ is a continual thing that defines us. It means that every morning we wake up and we remember again, my identity is bound up in Christ. And every day when we goof up and we sin, we turn from that sin and we come to Christ. And every time someone speaks to us in a way that offends us and angers us and we want to lash out in response we remember who we are and we come to Christ. This is to be that which most identifies us. We are that people who come to Christ. That's what we're known for. That's what defines us. And the one to whom we come, Jesus, is called here a living stone. Now, we don't normally think of stones as those, which, those things which have life, do we? We think of stones as those which are hard and trustworthy, and strong, and sure. The Lord is my rock and my strong defense. But we don't think of stones as having life. But that's what Christ is. He is strong. He is dependable. He is the one on whom we can build our lives, and it will not move. But He is also the source of all life. He is the living one who once died, but now lives again. God honored Jesus by bringing him back from the grave, giving him life eternal, and giving him the power to give life to others. This is the one to whom we come, and that is absolutely indispensable. We must come to know, to cherish, to delight in Christ, the living stone. We need to know who he is and what he has done and what that victory has accomplished for us. There is nothing more important in this life than knowing and coming to Jesus Christ, the living stone. That's why the the pure spiritual milk of God's word is so necessary. Because from Genesis, to the Exodus, to the law, to the judges, to the prophets, to the gospels, to the letters, to Revelation, all of it speaks of Christ. Christ. It speaks of how Christ was the one who created. It speaks of how Christ is the one who delivered. It speaks of how Christ is the one who now rules over his people. It speaks of how Christ calls back those who are straying. It speaks of how Christ came as one of us to deliver us unto him. It speaks of how we now must live and how he soon will come back and declare and proclaim his victory over every atom of the creation. We come to Christ, the living stone. And as we come to Him, He begins transforming us into living images of Him. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. Even as Christ is the one on whom we can depend, who is strong and solid and dependable, So we are being made the exact opposite of what we were. When we lived in malice, when we were consumed by envy, when we embraced lies and hypocrisy and slander, we were not trustworthy. In fact, we were the opposite. Foolish would be that person who rested in us, because we wouldn't be... We wouldn't be able to be trusted. It would be like building your house on shifting sand, on a, a beach. Boy, just, just a strong wind could cause that house to shake. And, and so for us, in our sin, just a breeze of public opinion, just a, a slight whiff of discomfort or envy, and boy, we'd be gone. But now we're being transformed into stones. Solid, Immovable, trustworthy, and sure. Living stones. As Christ has life in himself, he has given life unto us. True life, which is to say reconciliation with God, by which we're able to proclaim life to others. And we're not scattered stones. Understand that. I mentioned last week at one point, The gospel is not only about getting us into heaven. If it was, we would just be scattered stones. Oh, you're saved? Great. Our work here is done. We move on to the next person. But that's not it at all. He says you're living stones who are being built up as a spiritual house. In the Old Testament, the temple was often referred to as the house of God. It's the place where God set his presence, where his people came and they had fellowship with him. They heard from him, they spoke to him, they dwelt in his presence. Well, now we are the temple. Jesus said in John 4 that the time was coming and had now arrived when true worshipers of God would not worship in Jerusalem, nor would they worship in Samaria. But wherever God's people were, they would offer worship in spirit and in truth. And that day is now. The true and living temple is wherever God's people are gathered. We as living stones, we as those who bear the character of Christ, the life of Christ, we are being built together into a living temple in which God the Holy Spirit himself dwells. But we're not just the temple, we're also the priests who serve in its midst To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is our identity and our calling. Our identity is that we are stones that comprise the temple of God. That's amazing. That God chooses not to just dwell near us, not just just to reveal Himself to us now and then, but to remake us in the image of His Son and to dwell in us, in our midst. That's what you are. That's your identity. And your calling is to serve as priests within the temple. What do priests do? They bring sacrifice to God. They bring prayers on behalf of God's people. They speak to others. The message that God has given to them. That's our calling. Now, he doesn't say here what that priestly calling looks like. We read that elsewhere, including in First Peter. We're going to talk about that later, but understand that it involves all the Christian life. Certainly, Psalm 141 and others talk about how our priestly service is involved in our worship, right? Uh, Hebrews 13 talks about our sacrifice of praise and confession to the Lord. But Romans 12 Romans 12 tells us that our spiritual sacrifice is ourselves. It is the giving of our bodies, the giving of our lives, the giving of our service to the Lord. That's that's the sacrifice we bring now. Not bulls and goats and calves. No, we bring ourselves. We offer ourselves on the altar. A living sacrifice that gives anew every day. And we're the priests who bring it. We bring that sacrifice of ourselves. We bring that prayer on behalf of God's people and indeed on behalf of the world. And we come from the holy place and we proclaim to others through our confession. Look at who God is. Look at what God has done. That's not the calling of the minister. That's not the calling of the elders. Our calling is to equip you for the work of ministry. Because you are the prophets, or the priests, prophets too. You are the priests who serve, who worship, who call. And so, beloved, having received a place in the priesthood, you must not be ashamed of your task. You must not be ashamed of your calling. That's the last thing he shows us here. Having been, having received a place in the priesthood, we need to reject offense at the cornerstone of the temple, which is Christ. Verse 6 quotes Isaiah 28. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In that text, Isaiah, through the Holy Spirit, foretold the coming of Christ as the cornerstone. Now, in ancient... Stone building techniques. The cornerstone was the most important stone. After they cleared the foundation and made sure it was solid, they laid the cornerstone. They set it with great care because the rest of the wall would be measured off of that cornerstone. From that cornerstone, they would measure their angles. They would lay out their walls. And that cornerstone was was big and was strategically shaped so as to lend strength to the rest of the wall. That's what Jesus is for the kingdom of God. Those who trust in Him, God Himself will make them to be part of the kingdom. No one can cause His people to be put to shame because God guards them. He is the measure of the rest of the wall. He is the one who designs the temple of which we are a part. He is the one who grants strength. To the church which you are. And he is the one who preserves us from shame. Shame is the sure end of all who live in sin. When Christ returns and he gathers all who have ever lived before him. Every sin that each one has committed will be laid out for everyone to see. Every sinful word and deed and thought, every wicked and malicious intention of the heart will be laid bare for everyone to see. And those who died trusting in themselves, they will have no excuse. They will stand there with nothing to say other than to acknowledge the truth of the testimony that has been given what shame will fall upon them? God will say, I created you, I designed you, I upheld you entirely for the purpose of glorifying and serving me. You existed, you drew every breath, you ate every morsel for the end of serving and glorifying me, and you did none of it. What do you have to say for yourself? And they will be filled with nothing but shame. But for those who trusted in Christ, for those who were built up into the temple, who served as living priests... They will say, Christ has paid it all. Christ took my shame for me. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Father's kingdom. There will be for us no shame. But instead, God will celebrate the worship that we brought. The sacrifice of praise that we offered. The lives that we laid upon his altar. And he will say, this is evidence that you were joined to Christ. This is evidence that you were living stones gathered together by the living stone who is Christ. But the only way we can be sure that we will have no shame on that day is if we refuse to be ashamed of him today. Young people, that is tempting to you at times. You go out on that first date and you think, wow, this could be the one. Oh, she's just perfect. We get along so well. Do I dare talk about Jesus on the first date? Do I dare broach the subject of faith, of worship? Do I dare ask him, ask her to pray? Or you go to a new job site, a new place of employment. And the people are bold in their worldliness. They're boasting about all their wicked deeds. Celebrating how wild the weekend was. Do I dare to refuse to join in? And when they ask me what I did yesterday and how wild my weekend was, do I dare To confess that I was worshiping the Lord and camping with the people of God. I know they'll mock me. I know they'll turn away from me in scorn. Do I dare? Or will I be ashamed of Christ? Will I be ashamed of the identity he has given me? We must not. Instead, we must confess Him boldly as the cornerstone around which our lives are built. Only in that way can we be rescued from eternal shame. Only in that way can we know the joy that is inherent to our priestly purpose. And yes, some will reject us, some will mock us, some will scorn us. So what? The shame they will know is eternal. Unless they hear from us, unless they see in us the joy that comes in serving and worshiping the true God king. The alternative is to disobey Christ, to reject his command, to love him, and to confess him boldly. For those who choose that path, the blessings of Christ will be for others. But for them, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. On that last great day, he will not confess them as his, as his. He will not forgive them their sins. They will have no part in the eternal priesthood that rejoices to serve the Lord. They might avoid momentary shame in front of their co-workers. They might avoid momentary shame in front of their neighbors. But their shame will be eternal and inescapable. My friends, let none of us here experience that unending grief. Pray for strength to endure the scorn of a world that hates the Lord and stumbles over Christ. Pray for such joy at the knowledge of of His impending confession of you that will allow you to confess Him no matter what their response might be. Pray that He would give you eyes to see the reality of the glory that is yours being living stones in the temple. Priests who serve in the presence of God. And then come to Jesus continually. Crave the pure spiritual milk of His Word that will strengthen you. Put off that which characterizes those who live in their shame. And take up the glory of your priestly calling. This is the end to which we were called. That we might embrace eagerly our priestly purpose. It's to that end that we must prefer the word over the world. Because God has called us to receive a place in the priesthood. Therefore let us refuse to be offended by the cornerstone. But instead, let us delight and let us pray for the power to delight in knowing, loving, serving, reflecting our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you that you have called us to be priests in your living temple. To offer a spiritual sacrifice that is greater than any work this world might know. Teach us, Lord, to put off that which was characteristic of our old life and to crave that pure spiritual milk of the word. Teach us to recognize that we are indeed living stones in your temple, priests who serve in your your courtyard. And, Lord, grant that we might never be ashamed of Christ, no matter the cost, no matter the scorn, so that on that last great day we might hear Your welcoming voice, acknowledging us as your sons and daughters. This we pray for the sake of Jesus, your beloved Son. Amen. We are those called to be prophets, priests, and kings. Professing Christ before all the world, serving the Lord in worship throughout life bringing under His sway every aspect of life as kings. Let's pray for God's empowerment of those purposes as we stand and sing together number 468, God of the prophets, bless the prophets' sons.